Father, uh, we come to your word. We actually come to the, to the pinnacle of your revelation to humanity. The crucifixion of Christ, the Lord. Help us to understand it. It's not just the pinnacle of your revealed word. It's the pinnacle of, of human history. All of human history pivots at this point. So help us to understand it. We pray that it would speak to us that it would challenge us, that it would uh, penetrate our hearts. We ask for your spirit to be at work in our midst. And we pray these things in the name of Christ the Lord. Amen. So we have been making our way through this passion of Christ for the last few weeks, and we're moving toward, toward a point. You might, you might think of it like um, when you're hiking a, a mountain, and you're getting close to the summit, things become clearer, the delay of the land becomes clearer, you begin to see things that you couldn't see at the base of the mountain. And as we're climbing this passion of Christ, we're getting closer and closer to the summit, to the pinnacle of our faith, Christ crucified. And what happens is we get higher and higher, as we, we, we get clearings, we begin to see things. And we're seeing things more clearly. This is what we've seen over the last few weeks. We've seen the insufficiency of the human heart. It's rebellion against God. We've seen how, how the human heart tends to work. It tends to work out of fear, as we saw in the case of Pilate. Or pride, self-righteous anger and pride, as we see in the case of the, of the Jewish crowds. But last week, we saw that, that underneath the fear and pride, there's false worship. There's idolatry that's driving the actions and consuming the, 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 the human heart. It's idolatry. John Calvin says that, that, that our hearts are, are idol factories, that we just whip up idol after idol, and all of our sin is rooted in, at the very bottom, false worship, idolatry. That's where it finds its root. There's a movie, uh, a good example of how idolatry just eats us alive, is a movie um, called There Will Be Blood. Daniel Day-Lewis plays Daniel Plainview, who is an oil man, oil spectator, and he, um, he, and this is early 20th century, and he finds oil in this this dry, he's, he's obsessive, he's calculating, he's restless, and this drive drives him to come, become a rich oil man. And by all appearances, it, it looks as though he's really trying to help the community. He tells the community of where he is about his drilling. He says, I'm going I'm to blow gold all over this place. How can you refuse my, my work here? I'm going to make this place rich. But what's really happening is the greed that grips his heart is eating him alive. He has an idol. It's greed. And it takes from him. It takes those around him. He's, in the end, he's left alone. He pushes people away, and it consumes him. He's on the brink of a personal explosion by the end of the movie. It, it eats him alive. That's what idols do. They take, and they take. They alienate us from one another. And last week, Pilate, as we said, was controlled by the idol of career, Remember the thing that made him say, okay, we're going to crucify this, this, this one, was the possibility that the Jews would tell Caesar that he wasn't doing a good job. 
that his career, he wasn't, his, he wasn't pleasing his boss. So the idol of career in the case of Pilate, we saw last week the idol of, of, of Rome, actually, in the case of the Jews. God promised from the beginning the king, that he was going to usher in a kingdom through this people. He's going to bring a Messiah to bring in the kingdom of God. And he's standing there before them. And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Praise be to Caesar. He's our Lord. Their captor is their idol. And in a matter of decades, in 70 AD, Caesar will destroy them, which is what idols do. They eat us. They destroy us. They take our lives. They look like they lead to life. That's the appearance. The idol looks life-giving. But if you walk down that path, it takes life away. On the other hand, Christianity looks like a death from the outside. But what we're going to find is that it actually leads to life. It's life-giving. It's the only, it's the only life source. Daniel Plainview, the oil tycoon, was energized and invigorated as he gobbled up oil lands and muscled his way to oil tycoon dominance. But it killed him, and it hurt others. It ate away at him. And the Jewish leadership likewise. No God but Caesar. And Caesar bites back. So if our hearts are constantly attracted to these idols, what are we to do? There is an alternative, and it's to look to Christ. And Christ crucified. We're going to see this morning that the path of Christ is our path as well. So we're going to look at three things this morning. The path of Christ, his path, the place, and then the post. So his path, the place, and the post. So first, the path of Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. They took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. Jesus has been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been rejected. He's been condemned. And none of it comes as a surprise. Because John in his gospel, in his prologue, says that Jesus came into his own and his own rejected him. And Jesus has, has foretold of this death that he's going to face. So uh, Jesus goes out of the city bearing the cross beam, the, 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 the um, horizontal cross beam, and to carry it to the vertical beam on Golgotha, already posted up, ready to receive the condemned. And this whole crucifixion was intended to dehumanize the individual, the crucified. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point of a crucifixion. That was the purpose, to strip any dignity from the person, to degrade them. And a major part of the degradation was the path to the cross, carrying the, uh, the horizontal beam to the vertical beam. It was a parade of death. And Jesus would have been mocked and jeered and spit upon. It was exhausting. It was agonizing, painful. And here's, this, here's the startling conclusion, though. This path of Christ is our path. The path of Christ bearing the crossbeam is our path as Christians. It's the only path 
that we have as Christians. There is no alternative. Jesus said, he told his disciples, remember what he said? Matthew, he says it in all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke. He says in Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean by that? Let's think back to the idols of the heart. They work in tandem with the heart's desires. They, dr- they are driven by our heart's desires, idolatry, and they also give shape and drive, actually, the heart's desires, the, the idols that we worship. And they present themselves as salvation, as a type of salvation. If I follow the American dream, it's like an idol, the American dream, if I follow that, I can be saved. If I follow my romantic impulses or my sexual impulses, I can be saved. If I follow my desire for independence and autonomy, I can be saved. If I follow the path of material blessing, nice cars, nice homes, nice, nice, nice home, nice clothing, then I can be saved. What Jesus is saying here is not so fast. If you want to follow me, deny yourself of those things that your heart wants. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, when we hear take up your cross and follow me, we tend to think it means that what Jesus is asking us to do is kind of deal with a pet sin that we might have. Like, um, you know, my mother-in-law is my cross to bear, or my, my weight is my cross to bear, or my mean boss is my cross to bear, or the bullies at school are my cross to bear, or whatever it is. So we have these little, little crosses to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And in order to see that, we're gonna, we got the second point, right? That's the path, now the place. Where is Jesus going? Where does the cross-bearing path lead? Look at verse 17 again. He, he bore his cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Gogotha. It's poetic. Jesus is going to a place called the skull, and that is where he will die. The place of the skull is the place of death. That's where the cross-bearing path leads, to death. That's it. And John states it succinctly, at the place where the path leads, they crucified him, verse 18. And think about how brief that is. I have one message, Christ and Christ crucified. That's what I've been charged to preach, and we try to do it. I try to do that. My aim every week is to do that. And here it is. And look at how brief it John is. They crucified him. He doesn't explain the excruciating details. But like we said, it's the most miserable way to die. When the Assyrians, who were a brutal people, thought tried to whip up the best way to destroy a human life, or what they felt was the most degrading way to do it, they came up with the crucifixion. And it stuck because it was effective. It was good. And the Romans took it up, the practice as well. The path of Christ is a path to the place of death. And here's the thing. We're called to walk the same path. 
to death, to take up our cross beams and follow Christ to death. The wor- this is what the world says. Satisfy yourself. Take up every comfort and pleasure you can accumulate and follow your heart. That's what the world says. Satisfy yourself. Take up every comfort and pleasure you can accumulate and follow your heart. But what does Christ say? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. It couldn't be more different. Simon the Cyrene, who's not mentioned in John's account, you may remember, assists Jesus in his cross-bearing path, um, helps him. And um, John Stott, and you'll remember too, last week, we, or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Barabbas, um, which was a, a, a remarkable moment where um, Pilate offers the Jewish crowds um, life, truth, the light of the world, Jesus God incarnate, or a murderer, a thief, and who do they opt for? Who would they rather have live in their midst? Not the truth, not the life, not the light of the world, but we want the murderer. Barabbas. But, but listen to what John Stott says. Every Christian is both a Simon of Cyrene and a Barabbas, all of us. Like Barabbas, we escaped, we escaped the cross. We're the guilty one. We're the one that should be crucified. But we, let, we get let go. Jesus died in our place. Like Simon the Cyrene, we carry the cross because Jesus calls us to take up the cross and to follow him. And so, again, where does the cross-bearing person go? To death. It's one place and one place only. It's to our death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But the question really is, what does that mean for us exactly? What does it mean that we are called to die? Well, there's three deaths that we experience as Christians. Three deaths that the Christian experience is. The Christian experiences. The first death is a death at conversion. A death at conversion. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. When we convert and come to faith in Christ, the old self has died, and behold, a new self has has risen in its place. Life from death. But it doesn't end at conversion. There's also the death of a dying that happens throughout our sanctification, our growing up in Jesus. For all of our lives, we are living a death. I, l- I love this quote, and you guys have probably heard it too many times now, but um, when, when Rocky's in one of his battles, his little his uh, bouts, he comes to the sideline, and Mickey tells him, because he's getting beat up, and Mickey says, he's killing you out there. And Rocky's reply is, it's my life. <laughs> and it's our life. It's our life to die. A thousand deaths. Little deaths. Dying to the self. Dying to our desires. Dying to our wishes. Paul Paul puts it this way. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. The passions and sinful desires of the human heart 
must not be fed, but slaughtered, nailed to the cross, over and over and over again, dying to ourselves, dying to ourselves. It's our life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this sanctification. It's a work of God's free grace by which we are made new in the image of God and made more and more able to die to sin and live to righteousness. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, dying to sin, resurrected to righteousness, dying to sin, faith and repentance, dying to sin over and over and over. You know, a house, like, well, this, let's just think about this building. This building has thousands of nails in it throughout. One nail after another after another. We're hammered in, over the course of, of, of more than a year building this building. And so it is with our lives. A thousand nails crucifying the flesh, putting the flesh to death, killing our sin. Uh, I mean, all kinds of ways in which this happened. A coworker, a coworker takes credit for your idea at work. And you, you, you want to say, hey, is my, is my, no, die to self. Don't, 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 just don't mention it. Be thankful that the idea is being supported and being used and utilized. That's re- refraining from that. Say, it was my idea. That's a death. That's a death. That's one little death. Maybe it's your, your child's up at 2 a.m. They can't sleep and you're frustrated and you're irritated. You don't want, but you, you say, I'm going to die to myself. And I'm going to love and serve my child who can't sleep. Death. You struggle with pornography. And you go and you tell a friend, I need help. You confess the sin. Help me. Help me set up something that's going to keep me off of this. That's a death. It's dying to self. Spouse, inconvenience you. And you know you ought to serve. And you, but you want to kind of fight back. No, die. Die to self. Die to the flesh. Serve the spouse. This these, we could go on all, all day long, ways in which we die to self and live to righteousness. This is the Christian life. So we die at conversion. We die throughout sanctification. Paul Tripp says, if, if Christ is to be formed, I mean, not Paul Tripp, Paul Miller, if Christ is to be formed in you, the pieces of you need to be nailed to the cross, all the little pieces of you, incongruent with Christ in you. They must be nailed to the cross, thousands and thousands and thousands of nails over the course of a lifetime, nailed to the cross. So that's the death at sanctification. The third death that every Christian must face is a physical death. Physical death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, even though our outer self is wasting away, and for Paul that meant beatings, it meant physical persecution, it meant being stoned, For us, it may not mean those things. It may mean just breakdown from life. It may mean a cancer diagnosis. It may mean a hundred different types of suffering. It may mean losing our minds to dementia. It may mean breaking our hips from a simple fall. Even though our outer man is wasting away, even though we die, our inner self... Paul says, is being renewed day by day. Renewal, renewal, renewal. Light, momentary affliction, suffering of death, prepares an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says. 
So does that mean that the floggings and the stonings that Paul faced meant nothing? No. It was, it was awful suffering. But by comparison of the eternal weight of glory, forever and ever, amen, it's just that suffering, it's a drop in the bucket. It makes those sufferings light from the perspective of eternity, is what Paul says. So these are the three deaths that we face. The death at conversion into the life of Christ, the death throughout sanctification, dying to sin, living to righteousness, and then physical death that every, not just Christians, but every human faces. And all of this, again, is a 180 from what the world teaches. Right? Remember the world? Satisfy yourself. Take up every comfort and pleasure you can accumulate and follow your heart. But Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me to death, is what he says. Christ's path is our path. His walk is our walk. And we, we see his walk right here in these verses. What it means to take up our cross and to follow him. Now, I realize that may seem, sound a little dour. Didn't you talk about like a spiral of happiness at the beginning? <laughs> spiral of love? How, how does this relate to that? I want the spiral of love. I don't want the death and the dying. This is perfectly in step with the plan of God. The plan of God has been bringing life from death from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Remember Paul, or remember God calling Abraham and Sarai and making, giving them these huge promises of blessings to them and blessings to the world through them? And remember how that was going to come by way of a son, which they could not have. Sarai's womb was, was dead, in a sense. It was barren. It had no life-giving capacity. Death. But God, ex nihilo, brings forth miraculously Isaac into the world. And then a few, a decade or more later, Isaac is, is a dead man. God calls for his life to be given. And then the Lord provides. He, he brings Isaac back from the dead in a sense. And then in time and time again in the, in the patriarchs, we see this. Joseph is, is dead in the eyes of his father. He's sent to Egypt. He's gone. He's a slave. For all Jacob knows, he is no longer. And then Joseph comes back from the dead, so to speak, and delivers his people. He saves the people from fam his, his family from famine and delivers them to a sanctuary in Egypt where there is food. Life out of death. Life out of death. Life out of death. This is, this is the heart of the Christian story. Life from death. That all the death, all the dying, though we go out sow, sowing and weeping, we'll sing songs of joy. There's life on the other side of all of this dying. That's, that's, that's the biblical promise. It's all going to flip. And we actually see it in the, in the post, the final point. The post is the climax. So Pilate posts this sign that is very significant. Very significant. 
Look at verse 19. Pilate, now I don't believe Pilate's actually writing it. Pilate had this written. He's not out scribbling on a little board. He, he's, he's commissioned this sign to be written. And he put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the chief priests don't like it one bit. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, uh, Pilate, um, don't, don't write the king of the Jews. Write this man said he was the king of the Jews. Right? I mean, he, we, we don't really believe, we don't want people to think he's our king. We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate says, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. And Pilate's little barebone post speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. It gives us all the information we most seek in another person, doesn't it? Think about when you meet somebody. What do you want to know about them? Name, where are you from, what do you do? Pilate gives us all of that information. Jesus, from Nazareth, who is the king of the Jews. That's what he does. That's his job, his vocation. He's a king. It's all the information we want. But he's not just the king of the Jews. The, the sign actually speaks more broadly. Look at, look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The language of the world, of the worlds. The Babylonian language, Aramaic. The Greek language of the Greek conquerors. The, the Latin language of the Roman Empire. All of the world can see that at the moment that Christ is lifted up or enthroned, as he said, glorified, he is declared by a representative of the king of the world, Pilate, king, the king of the nations. Anyone who's literate can read. That's, that's, he's the king. Listen to what Frederick Bruner says. Did those passing by realize that they were reading the first and most condensed edition of what was to become the single most published text and later book, the Bible, right? The Holy Scriptures, if, if you wanted to boil them down to three words, here they are. Jesus is king. And that's what the sign says. Jesus is king. And here's the scandal of it all. The king bears a cross. King's cross. That's why we named this church that. It's the, it's the heart of the whole story. The king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The king bears a cross. Those two words get us to the heart of this. This is the, this is the king of all creation. There's not a little millimeter of the universe that's not under his sovereign rule. There's not a microbe in the universe that doesn't listen to his rule and reign and give heed to it. All of creation at the time when his kingdom is consummated at his return will fully submit to Christ the Lord, Christ the King. Every knee will bow and waves of flourishing will ripple throughout creation at his return. This is his glory. And here's the thing. This is the, the, the real surprise here. We share in that glory, Paul says. We too are kings 
Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 1 at the end of his prayer. He prays that uh, we would have the knowledge of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit working in us, that we would know that power, the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, from which he rules and reigns over all creation. And then Paul adds this, the church, his body, completes his reign and rule over all creation. That we reign with Christ, co-heirs of an eternal kingdom, provided we also die with him. Now, we're in the season of Lent, this 40-day period ahead of the Passion Week, and it corresponds, those 40 days correspond to the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. And you remember at the end of his time in the wilderness, Satan tempts him. And one of the temptations is for, Satan says, take the world. I've got the whole world in my hands. Do you want it? I'll give it to you. And remember what Jesus said? No, I'm not going to take it. Because it would be to have the crown without the cross. It's the simplest way to put it. Jesus is not interested in a judged, doomed, worldly kingdom. He came for a redeemed, recreated kingdom, unblemished. And that means one and one thing only, the cross. There's no crown without the cross. And so Jesus is is steady on his path. And his path is our path. We share in his sufferings, Paul says, in order that we may share also in his glory. And this is really, this is really important for us. And, and I want to I make this clear. Our suffering in Christ does not add to the work of Christ. When Christ was on the cross, he declared, it is finished. The work has been done. Our suffering adds nothing. It doesn't complete our salvation. That is solely based on the work of Christ. Our suffering in Christ is a fruit of our union with Christ, our being united to Christ in his death. And so suffering inevitably flows out of that, but it doesn't, it doesn't add to our salvation. It's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, plus suffering. That's not it. Suffering is a fruit of our union with Christ. But dying, it's our living. It's our lives, as Rocky said. And it's also a humble admission of our need for change. I mean, if you're like me, I'm not happy with, I want to be different. Things that have been struggles for decades, um, still struggle. I want to change. And to the extent that we're unsettled with ourselves, with who we are, maybe even how our relationships look at the moment, that's the extent to which we need to be changed, isn't it? Christ says, it's not just a tweak or an adjustment. You need a whole new you. So die to self, live to me, and you'll, you'll see that. You, that will be real. It will be realized. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word, for the work of Christ. And it is a sobering thought, but it is, a, it is true. Our path is your path. Help us to take up our crosses and to follow you. We also pray that you would keep us mindful of the glory that awaits those who suffer with Christ. 
of the glory that is for your people. Give us a vision of that. Give us a vision, as Paul prayed in that same prayer in Ephesians, a vision of your glorious inheritance that is for your saints. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. So steady us in our suffering with those hopes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.